This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 30th, 2007. I'm Caleb Brown. When a blighted area needs renewal, governments often use tax increment financing to spur developments they say would never appear otherwise. But what incentives are created, both for developers and the government itself, when government is given greater control over the course of local development? Cato Institute senior fellow Randall O'Toole is author of the new Cato book, The Best Laid Plans. He says tax increment financing leads to several abuses, not the least of which is a more widespread use of eminent domain. Well, California invented tax increment financing in about 1953, and the idea was that uh, in, in the 50s, in the late 40s and 50s, Inner cities that had been densely populated were being abandoned by large numbers of people who were moving to low-density suburbs. And the question was what to do with the slums in those inner cities. Uh, They were often buildings that were fire traps, they were poorly maintained, and the owners didn't have the money to maintain them because their renters were all leaving. And so the state came up with the idea of dedicating the property taxes that would be paid on any any improvements in those areas to subsidies, to kickstart the improvements, to kickstart the rehabilitation of these areas. So it was urban renewal. It was a way of paying for urban renewal with state funds. The way tax increment financing works, of course, is that the existing property taxes that are being paid by developments in an area continue to go to schools and fire and police and the things that they normally go for. But all new property taxes from uh, the incremental value when people make improvements or people build new buildings or when the value of buildings goes up because other people have built new buildings, that incremental tax goes into the subsidy. And generally what the cities do is they sell bonds based on their estimated flow of those incremental taxes and then pay back the bonds with those taxes. It sounded good at first, but what quickly happened was is that the cities realized this is a way for them to effectively steal money from schools and fire districts and other competing tax bodies. Most property taxes don't go to cities. And so uh, if, if you're a city commissioner and you want to get reelected, you know, having all those property taxes go to the school district don't, doesn't really help your campaign much. But if you can divert some of those taxes from the school district to a local developer, and that developer gets a big subsidy to put into development in downtown or some other part of your city, that developer is likely to express his or her appreciation by giving you a nice campaign contribution when re-election time comes. So the schools end up with less money, fire ends up with less money, Police end up with less money, but your campaign con- contribution benefits or, or campaign fund benefits and the be- developer benefits, and so it looks like a good thing to you. To what extent does tax increment financing actually give local governments greater control over the course of development in their communities? Well, they are exercising massive control in many places. San Jose has declared a third of its city area to be blighted. Uh, which is in most states, in order to use tax increment financing, you first have to declare an area to be blighted. And once it's blighted, then you can use the power of eminent domain and you can use tax increment financing to control all future development. Well, one thing that happens when you declare an area blighted is that property rights are less secure because 
uh, you know at any time the government can come in and by eminent domain take your property, and although they say they pay fair market value, they're going to try to pay a lot less than fair market value, and you're going to have, have to fight them in court, and that's costly, and so a lot of people just end up taking what they can get. Well, when that happens, banks are going to be reluctant to make loans to you. If you want to improve your house or you improve your business, but it's been declared blighted and it could be taken any time, they're going to be reluctant to make loans. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. People stop making investments in their neighborhoods because it's been declared blighted, so it does become blighted. And actually, some of the neighborhoods in San Jose that were supposedly blighted were wealthy neighborhoods. And the reason why they declared them blighted is because the private tennis courts in the backyard uh, still had some leaves in them, and the owners hadn't raked the leaves, and that was considered to be a sign of blight. So, you know, you can see that if they had private, private tennis courts, they really weren't blighted neighborhoods. But suddenly, uh, if you want to put an addition on your house, the bank's going to say, well, we're not going to give you a loan for that because they could take your house at any time and put up a Walmart. Tax increment financing has been used, though, in areas that are desirable pieces of property to build high-rises and other pieces of slightly more desirable properties? Well, 49 states have approved the use of tax increment financing. And in almost every case, you're required to, to prove or at least assert that the area is blighted first. But in places in California, they've declared areas blighted that were vacant land. And they just said, well, it's vacant land, and so it's blighted, and so we want to uh, use tax increment financing and eminent domain to take away people's land. Now, in some states, because of the backlash after the Kelo decision, uh, people passed measures that said you can't use eminent domain to take people's property and give it to another private owner. But you can still use eminent domain, you can still declare it blighted, and you can still use tax increment financing. And so what we see happen in these areas is that a developer will come in, buy some land, then go to the city and say, will you declare my land blighted so that I can then take all the property taxes that I would have had to pay on the improvements and use them to help subsidize those improvements? And in most states, you don't even have to declare to prove that it's blighted if the property owner is willing to admit that it's blighted. So you don't have to, there's usually a checklist of things that you have to tick off to show that it's blighted. But if the property owner will say it's blighted, then that's enough. And that way developers, there are companies that work all over the country that work almost exclusively with tax increment financing. And they'll go to a city that's got tax increment financing, buy some land and say, declare my land blighted and I'll build whatever kind of development you want uh, and we'll just make sure that the subsidy is big enough to make up for the uh, lower market value of pleasing your planners rather than doing something that the market really wants. Randall O'Toole is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of the book, The Best Laid Plans. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. Cato Today is an email rundown of everything coming up at the Cato Institute. You can subscribe at our website, cato.org. <laughs>